Come here, fellow servant, and listen to me. I'll show you how those of superior degree are only dependents, no better than we, and all in the livery. Tis here, fellow servant, and there, fellow servant, and all in a livery. Tis here, fellow servant, and there, fellow servant, and all in a livery. Well, hello. Welcome back to the American Writers uh, 100 Pages at a Time podcast. Um, and in this episode, we'll be talking about uh, the Library of America's anthology of the writings of, of Benjamin Franklin, uh, focusing on the period from well the seven years war i guess is the period we're looking at now and this takes us well it's actually it's actually it's a, it's, a, it's a little bit of a weird uh section we got a little few more documents to talk about before he went to london in 1757 and that's what we'll do in the next two episodes is talk about his time in london which takes us from 1757 till the outbreak of the american revolution when he of course returns to the united states uh to serve on the continental congress but um we're going to see him really set up a lot of his arguments for american independence or the assertion of of colonial rights early on as it's of course a transition for, for for many americans to go from defending their rights as as members of the british empire to finally uh, abandoning that for a, an argument for revolution um but we also have here a section of letters um that cover his whole life from 1726 to 1757 so basically his american-based letters um and i won't have too much to say about those i suppose but they they do exist here and they're they they do kind of give a brief overview part of me almost wish the editor had kind of put those letters in the relevant places in the anthology rather than separate his his like public writings with his private ones but that's something this library of america almost always does is is put the letters separate either as separate volumes or more often as as parts of of, of anthologies of, of authors writings if their letters are relevant um I don't know if they have the Adams Jefferson letters as a separate volume yet, or if, if they'll ever do that. But we hope uh, we hope they will. So, anyways, where we let we picked up on where we left off on last time was the 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 Albany Plan of Union, which was basically an effort by Franklin to create a common defense institution, uh, an alliance of the colonies, to create kind of a, a, a standard foreign policy for dealing with with Indians mostly and that's in the context of the Seven Years War when when of course the, the frontier was a zone of, of pretty brutal warfare we did a whole series on the Francis Parkman a couple years ago maybe three years ago at this point uh, maybe not that much but a while ago we did a series on the Francis Parkman history of French North America and that involved a really in-depth look at the at the Seven Years' War and how it devastated the the frontier areas, um, both for uh, the British colonists and for the, the the Indians themselves who are part of that conflict. Um, and then we also talked about the impact of that with the Pontiac Rebellion and all that. So that's all in the backdrop of of these uh, these documents we're going to be looking at in this episode and the next one. Um, 
But certainly, as we see with the Albany Plan of Union, his thinking is how do we assert and how do we define America's place in the British Empire and their their various rights. So, of course, we got uh, the one argument he was making way back in 1754, which is pretty early, uh, is taxation without representation. And again, if you've took taken your U.S. history courses, your even your middle school history courses should have went over this, is the argument about taxation without representation was based on the fact that the colonists did not have representation in parliament. They were so-called virtually represented, um, but they were subject to um, all sorts of, of taxes, right? And there's all the, the distinction between like taxes that came from regulating uh, commerce and those direct taxes. And of course, Franklin, when he was in England, was a pro uh, op opponent of the stamp tax, which was one of those direct taxes. But here he's making a general argument in the context of the Seven Years' War about the burdens of the war being placed on the colonists without, uh, without any representation. So his argument in this, well, this document is a, is a series of like letters to Governor William Shirley uh, written for the, the London Chronicle. And some of these are dated 1766. There's like an addendum to them later on, but I think the bulk of it, this text comes from 1754, right after the Albany Plan of Union. Um, or maybe it was reprinted in 1766. I think that's what happened. It was originally written in 1754 and then printed uh, in 1766 to the London Chronicle. Um, the argument is essentially we are, and obviously that's a hugely, that's a very different period of time when that's being reprinted. Uh, Franklin is in London. He is in London uh, doing various things, but he is functioning as an advocate for the colonists in the, you know, in the higher echelons of power in, in, in England. And, he, you know, some did support the colonists' positions and listed them, but he's using the press in London to do that. But we'll, we'll get to that next time. But the argument here essentially is we are loyal um, by not allowing us, and we're willing to pay taxes, and by not allowing us to have representation, you are distrustful of that loyalty and, and therefore don't take seriously our, our feelings about our place in the British Empire. Now, given this, this essentially makes the colonists subject people, even makes this comparison directly in the context of the Seven Years' War, saying... Uh, that compelling the colonies to pay money without their consent would be rather like raising contributions in an enemy country than taxing the Englishmen for their own public benefit. That it would be treating them as a conquered people and not as true British subjects. That a tax laid by the representatives of the colonists might easily be lessened as the occasion should lessen, but one being laid by Parliament under the influence of the representation made by governors would probably be kept up and continued for the benefit of governors to the grievous burden and discouragement of the colonists. Colonies and preventing their growth and increase and quote so there's a lot to unpack there uh nothing nothing very complicated but of course uh, you know i often hear people say things like well these taxes weren't very high it was like the colonists were throwing a temper temper tantrum over a really low tax and while it's true that the taxes were low that wasn't the heart of the argument the argument was closer to this that if we have representation we can negotiate we can um see a tax withdrawn or limited or reduced or reformed in some way. Um, 
And there's an incentive for parliament then to make wise choices and how they tax people who are represented. If you're not, it's just like how you might tax a, a conquered people. You know, you wouldn't care about their opinion because nothing, their opinion, their opinions wouldn't matter in your decision making in any way. So, as I said, these, these, this document is pretty straightforward and, and it's a good statement, I think, of, of the revolutionary colonial opinion about taxation of representation. And, and it's notable that, that um, Benjamin Franklin was quite early in these, uh, making these cases in, in, and in the context of a war. I think that's significant too. He's not doing it in peacetime, he's doing it at a time when taxes were likely to increase. And that's of course what happens, right? After the war, it's when you have the colonial crisis and the imposition of new taxes on the colonists. So he's, he's kind of seeing the future here. Now, 1766, of course, is the stand back crisis period. Well, a year, it's a year after the repeal or so, about, about a year, maybe less than a year after the, it's, it's, it's after the repeal of the stamp act. But uh, this is, a, again, for British, it's being reprinted for British audiences in, in 1766. Um, the next document we have is the dialogue between X, Y, and Z concerning the present state affairs in Pennsylvania. This was published in, uh, as most of these documents have been, in the Pennsylvania Gazette. So this is a defense of Franklin's Militia Act of 1755. And the background on this, this may be less familiar to, to most of you, um, was it essentially created the first like, organized, centrally controlled military in in Pennsylvania history, and I think maybe American history. Prior to this, militias existed, of course, but they were more informal, um, and they would serve in con you know these colonial conflicts between France and Britain. Uh, but they were ad hoc creations. And what um, Franklin wanted was the creation of a of something more regular. So he was just worried that uh, because there wasn't enough like central control, he, he's still calling for a volunteer militia here. He's not saying like, he's not calling for conscription, uh, but he is saying that that militia needs to be more regularly organized, uh, more to have more discipline if it's going to be an effective military force. Um, so I, I did a little bit of outside reading on this militia act, um, and it's basically coming from military weakness among that militia. And of course, Pennsylvania has a pretty long frontier with Native Americans and it was the center of a lot of uh, fighting in the in the Seven Years War. So um, so some of the things that were given is like the governor could create like general court marshals for the for, for militia members um, and and those kinds of things. So it's a lot of it's a lot of it's about discipline uh, in in the military, even though it's still a largely informal militia. Now, this was opposed, obviously, by people who saw this as an intrusion on, on liberties, I suppose. But uh, ben, so Ben Franklin writes this dialogue between X, Y, and Z concerning the present state of affairs in Pennsylvania, which is largely a defense, as I said, of the, of the Militia Act. And it's, um, and it's written as a dialogue between these uh, three people basically talking about like, hey, did you hear about the Militia Act? What do you think of that? And then the back and forth between the different members as they detail the, what's in the law and what it does and what it doesn't do. It's actually a pretty effective way of communicating, it seems to me. Um, but a lot of it, I would say the way it sounds here, this is still a very, very democratic institution that Franklin is suggesting here. He just, uh, 
doesn't want it to be quite so uh, undisciplined in practice because he's because what's the point of having militia if it's completely you know ineffectual uh, but a lot of it rests on the question of leadership like do we trust the leaders who will appoint the leaders and what powers will they have and so x here says of all the officers appointed by governors were always men of merit and fully qualified for their post it would be wrong even to hazard a populist elect a popular election it is reasonable i allow that the commander-in-chief should not have officers absolutely forced upon him in whom from his knowledge of their incapacity he could place no confidence on the other hand it seems more likely that the people will engage more readily in the service and face danger with more intrepidity when they're commanded by a man they know and esteem and on whose prudence and courage as well as goodwill and integrity they're going to have reliance that they would not under a man they either did not know or did not like end quote now of course this is going to be an issue with royal governors appointing leaders to head militias that maybe weren't of the community of the militia members themselves right so the, the alternative would be then elect their leaders right but then you have the problem of discipline so Ben Franklin is trying to uh, find a solution to this this problem, given the fact that these militias aren't going to accept like a, a British officer just imposed on them by a royal governor. So he makes his defense, but there's some other really good things here that I think speak to Franklin's positions on colonial rights in general. For instance, he talks a lot about how um, what earns the British subjects in the Americas the right to have these rights. He doesn't just say they're granted from birth necessarily. He even goes farther and say they're earned. Uh, British subjects by removing into America, cultivating a wilderness, extending their dominion, and increasing the wealth, commerce, and power of their mother country at the hazard of their lives and fortunes ought not, and in fact do not thereby lose their native rights. There is a power in the crown to grant the continuance of those rights to, su to such subjects in any part of the world and to their posterity born in such a new country. End quote. So this is getting to the taxation with the representation thing rather obliquely, um, but it's there. So this is tied to, and I kind of lip, grouped these together a little bit, to the Mutiny Act, which was about one year later or so, which which also deals with discipline. But maybe the Militia Act's a little bit more on, on leadership. But they go together um, pretty well. Um, Anyways, that's something Ben Franklin was working on uh, in his his last couple years before uh, relocating to to the um, to London. So this was published. This letter, though, was published in the Pennsylvania Gazette, as I said. Um, really interesting way, I think, of 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 talking about laws as a conversation and a discourse. Uh, it's it's a kind of an aspirational thing, I suppose. In reality, politics is a lot dirtier and uh, cynical in, its, in the way decisions are made. But the idea of three people sitting down talking about a bill and coming to some consensus about it and agreeing to, you know, you know, these are the objections. Here's our response to those objections. That kind of thing. It's a it's a nice way, I think, of, of framing the argument to the public. Uh, then we just have a couple of parables he wrote uh, about persecution and brotherly love. Um, so. so the first is uh, is the parable against persecution, which seems to be part of a larger book because it's called chapter 
uh, like 27. Um, but it's written in 1755. I don't... I should look this up. Uh, this, this is just in his papers, so I guess it was written and never published. But uh, it's, it's, it's rather interesting. It's, it's written um, as, from the point of view of Abraham and uh, a man who's not blessed by God comes there and Abraham sort of scolds him for not worshiping God, the creator of heaven and earth. And he says, I can't name that God and that you worship or I can't name this God. I don't worship him. And Abraham kind of beats him up and kicks him out into the wilderness. And then God comes to him. The mid midnight God comes to Abraham and scolds him for doing this, saying, had I borne with him these hundred Ninety-eight years and nurture, nourished him and clothed him, notwithstanding his rebellion against me. And couldst not thou, by art, by art thyself, to sinner, bear with him one night? Abraham says, "Let not the anger of my lord wax hot against his servant. Lo, I had sinned. Forgive me, I pray thee." And quote. So Abraham repents for his behavior towards this stranger. Uh, yeah, pretty straightforward argument for uh, for religious tolerance. So then we get a story involving, uh, the, this is a parable on brotherly love with uh, like Simon and Judah and and all these like Genesis characters, which I, I can't keep, keep track of. Jacob, Joseph, these people, this family. And it's just a situation where someone, one of these guys is, needs what tool and the other one doesn't give him. But then of course the tide the, the tables turn and someone else need the other guy needs the tool and he grants it to him saying you know you know i give my brother what is what he needs or something it, it's it's fine it's not as interesting i think as the parable it's persecution but it's it's there uh so that's what we have that kind of finishes up his writings in philadelphia up until 1757 when he departs for uh for for london to uh I think he goes there on a journalism thing. He goes there as a journalist, and that's how he functions. But he ends up getting involved in politics, uh, of course, and in public life in London uh, as the colonial crisis deepens. So he, he does a lot of his uh, important political work uh, from London. Then we got uh, letters. So what to say about these letters? I don't know. It's There's a, there's a bunch of them. So it's it's fun to see him talking to people like George Whitefield. There's a little, quite a few of these are are written to George Whitefield uh, when he started building his friendship with George Whitefield, and we see um, him talking about things like um, well, he, there's like in one of these he talks about Confucius. So he's kind of putting this is this is relevant to me because I was always interested in how people in the Enlightenment era what they knew about China and what they, they understood about China and what they, and how they, they put that into their own understandings of governance and society and all that. Um, and he's kind of talking about Confucius as a, as a reformer here. He says, I'm glad to hear that you have frequent opportunities of preaching among the great. If you can gain them a good and exemplary life, wonderful changes will follow in the manners of the lower ranks. On this principle, Confucius, the famous Eastern reformer proceeded. When he saw his country sunk in vice and wickedness of all kinds triumphant, triumphant, he applied himself first to the grandees, and having by his doctrine won them to the cause of virtue, the commons followed in multitudes. The mode has a wonderful influence on mankind, and there are numbers that perhaps fear less 
the beings of hell than being out of fashion. Our more Western Reformation began with the ignorant mob, and when numbers of them were gained, interest in party views drew them drew in the wise and great. Where both methods can be used, reformations are likely to be more speedy, or that some method can be found to make them more lasting. Uh, end quote. So I'm not quite sure what he's exactly trying to say here. Is he trying to tell George Whitefield that he's too much talking to the common people? I, I guess that's what he, he's trying to say here, is that you're appealing to the religious sentiments of the commoners. Um, but look at Confucius. He was able to make a much more effective reformation by going more top down. Right. And then I don't know how historically I guess that is historically true. If you just read the text right uh, from ancient China, Confucius would talk to leaders and convince them. And then it took now it wasn't in his lifetime, but it would take centuries for the masses to become uh to embrace Confucian largely through the state making it the, it the ruling ideology. So he's oversimplifying something that was really, really complex, but he's, um, I think he's talking about the way we go about religious reformations. Or more broadly, the Enlightenment, which might be uh, more to the point. Uh, we got a cut one here to James Parker uh, in Philly about. Uh, making friends with the Indians in 1750, something that would be, of course, uh, significant in a, in a few years later in the Seven Years' War. Um, this one's pretty gruesome, where he writes to John Franklin, his brother, about uh, a technical matter, uh, the invention of the flexible catheter, which was pretty gruesome to read, uh, mostly thinking about what catheters were even like in those days. Um, you know, obviously, probably some kind of metal pipe uh, was used. And he's saying, well, we could improve this by basically applying, like, there's a technique that silversmiths could use to make uh, a narrower and more flexible pipe that could be used for a catheter. Um, so I don't know what motivated him to uh, pursue this, uh, this invention or this uh, line of inquiry, but, but maybe it was a bad day at the doctor's office that... That led him to that quite a lot here on science stuff I, I can't see too much about it but observations he's making scientifically arithmetical uh, conclusions he's coming he came to uh, quite a few are on weather of course Ben Franklin was a major founder of meteorology right and, and we got quite a few letters here speaking to his observations about uh, about the weather and how you observe it, right? And how you measure it and how you can predict the weather based on these, uh, these readings that you, that you make. Uh, he's got a couple here about electricity. Um, so there's a lot of that. So if you're interested in Franklin's scientific perspectives, I think this, these, are, these are interesting to read. But I, I, to be honest, I didn't take the closest look at some of those. Um, he wrote one to a guy named Peter Collinson. And frankly, I, I didn't look up half of these uh, names. But... Um, about the support of the poor. Uh, and this is, you know, it, it's, it's significant from an 18th century point of view. Obviously we're not getting a welfare state in any sense here, but he is making a distinction. He isn't falling for the 18th century normal opinion of, of the deserving poor basically are only orphans and old widows or something and then pretty much anyone else is an undeserving poor that that could be working if they just uh put forth put forth the effort that's the common view of like the poor laws in england and a lot of the welfare state stuff that existed in 
Britain and other colonies at the time didn't go much beyond this idea that if you could work, you should be sent to a, a workhouse only if you're like really des if you're dependent in some way on others. Do you deserve any handouts? Nevertheless, why I say I mean he's a little bit better in some areas on that. Like he talks about things about having schools, about uh, providing those kinds of things, uh, maybe using militias to help provide welfare and jobs for people. So it's a little bit more, I think, moving towards a general policy of, of welfare, um, universal programs, if you will, but baby steps. Um, but I think what's really most interesting about this document for me is that he talks about laziness when he talks about laziness, I mean, how are you to prove people are lazy, right? You know, of course, some people say people just, some people just are lazy. Others say it's a reflection of our conditions and our relationships and our, you know, what our learning. And that's why you make a case for public schools, right? Hopefully you work that out to people. But what's our natural state, right? And of course, in the Enlightenment, people who are interested in natural state would look to Indians, uh, wrongly doing so because those weren't state of nature societies, but that's how people in the Enlightenment tended to look at them and Ben Franklin was one of those. But he writes this, the proneness of human nature to an ease of life, of freedom from care and labor appears strongly in the little success that has hitherto attempted every attempt to civilize our American Indians. In their present way of living, almost all their wants are supplied by the spontaneous productions of nature with very little, with, a, with the addition of very little labor. If hunting and fishing may indeed be called labor when the game is still plentiful, they visit us frequently and see the advantages that art, science, and compact society procure us, but they're not deficient in, they're not deficient in natural understanding, and yet they have never shown any inclination to change their manner of life for ours or to learn any of our arts. When an Indian child has been brought up among us, taught our language, and habituated to our customs, yet if he goes to see his relations and make one Indian ramble with them, there's no persuading him ever to return and that this is not natural to them merely so that and this is not natural to them merely as indians but as men is plain to see and that when white persons of either sex have been taken prisoners young by the indians and lived among them while though ransomed by their friends and treated with all imaginable tenderness to prevail with them to stay among the english yet in a short time they become disgusted with our manners of life end quote so he's saying a couple things he's saying you raise an indian in the British way, send him back to the Indian tribes. He'll become an Indian. He'll he'll default back to laziness. Same thing with someone raised fully in the British way. If they get captured by Indians, they'll accept that part of their life and you bring them back to the British colonists someday, rescue them. They want to go back to being lazy. So the argument is laziness is a basic human trait. Now, I want, now, of course, this is a problem for people like Ben Franklin when they're thinking about things like welfare uh, and care for the poor. And it's still an issue that people struggle with when they think about this issue. But I want to say, let's take this seriously as our nature. Maybe laziness is the wrong term, but freedom, freedom from want, freedom from care, right? We thrive when we're not stressed. We thrive when we're relatively happy. Uh, most of us don't like work. And you'll, I know someone out there will say, I like my job or whatever. Yeah, you're the minority if you like your job. Most people, even when they take a job they trained for, that their guidance counselor said, this is the perfect job for you after filling out this stupid form. And 
you agree, yeah, I would love to be whatever that is, uh, teacher. <laughs> then you go and actually have to teach. And it's it's day-to-day misery, right? And of course, you still look forward to your weekends. You still would rather not do that if you could avoid it. So I want to know more about why it is, what it is about work that makes it so odious and how could we improve it? So I'm thinking of things like um, uh, Fourier, Charles Fourier in France was struggling with this when he was coming up with the phalanx idea. Like, how can we make work palatable to people when it's clearly not? Um, and I think it's still something we struggle with because can we eliminate work entirely? Maybe, maybe not, but probably not entirely. Um, we're all going to have to do something we don't like from time to time. But at least in the short term. Um, but, how, you know, how can we make that work as good as possible, I suppose, is, is something we should spend more time to. And, and so, much, so many workplaces are unnecessarily odious, unnecessarily bureaucratic, unnecessarily uh, degrading. We could do much better. That's what I think. So, um, so that's an interesting uh, letter to look at. Um, what else? Stuff, more science here. Oh, John Linning, uh, an article about heating cold. But a lot of good science stuff here. A few good political things in the letters, but they are what they're at. they are. So um, I'll leave it at that. Um, in the next episode, I'll we'll look at uh, Ben Franklin's writings from 1757 to 1768 um, or so, and this is all from London. For the, I don't know if he sometimes maybe traveled back to Pennsylvania, but basically he's working from London in these years and a lot of stuff on the seven years war on politics on the economic relationship between britain and the colonies um and then getting into like the stamp act crisis and things like that so that will we'll be right into it in the next episode and then the final episode of this series will cover the lead up to the american revolution uh, before franklin's return to america so, um, yeah, that's it for now. So let me know what you think about any of these uh, documents or ideas. Um, and uh, I'll see you no next time. Thanks for, for listening. So we laugh at the great world, its fools and its knaves. For we are all servants, but they are all slaves. And all in a livery. Tis here, fellow servant, and there, fellow servant, and all in a livery. Tis here, fellow servant, and there, fellow servant.